0: Welcome to the Kate Languages Summer 2023 Replay Series. This summer, between seasons four and five, I'm re-releasing some of my favourite ever podcast episodes that I think are well worth a re-listen. From my top tips for saving time, to classroom management, the new GCSE, and teacher wellbeing and burnout, via some of the best conversations I've had over the past few years with some Absolutely incredible educators. I hope you enjoy listening to these episodes again and get lots of great ideas and inspiration from them. Hello, welcome back to the Kate Languages Podcast. This is season three, episode four, and today I'm bringing you a really, really interesting chat with Elizabeth Swan. I'll tell you all about that in a moment, but I just wanted to ask how you're doing, how are you, how are you settling into. This academic year. I can't believe it's nearly the end of September already. What is going on? It's definitely feeling a lot more autumnal at the moment, which I love. I don't know about you, I, I love autumn and kind of looking forward to winter. Is that strange? I don't know. Ask me again in January, February time. I probably won't be that happy about winter by then. Anyway, so yeah, so this is the fourth episode of season three. And as I said, This is a really, really great chat with Elizabeth Swan. So just to give you a bit of background information about Elizabeth before I tell you what we were chatting about. She is a teacher, coach and consultant who draws upon lived experience and professional expertise from over 20 years as a qualified teacher, SENDCO and head teacher in secondary and special schools, as well as postgraduate study of psychology. Elizabeth's work is rooted in research-informed approaches to raising awareness and understanding of neurodiversity, with a particular focus on girls and women with ADHD. If you want to learn more about her, she is Elizabeth underscore Swan underscore UK on Instagram, and her website is ElizabethSwan.co.uk. So yeah, we had a really, really fascinating chat about neurodiversity and in particular teaching students with ADHD and autism. And as this is a languages podcast and Lizzie actually uh, trained as a languages teacher before she moved into more kind of SEN teaching, we obviously focused on MFL teaching. So we had a really, really great chat about some top tips for how to make your lessons more ADHD and autism friendly. So for students who are neurodiverse, how do you make your lessons more accessible for them? less intimidating because some things can be very, very frightening for all students, let alone students who are neurodiverse. And Lizzie had some absolutely fantastic tips on um, on how to teach students with ADHD and autism. We also had a really interesting discussion about whether students should be kept in MFL lessons Uh, because quite often SEN students are removed from MFL. It seems to be the first choice of, oh, we'll take them out of languages lessons. But we both actually feel quite strongly that that isn't the right thing to do. And I'd be so interested to hear everybody's opinions and experience on teaching students with the, the full range of SEND, but but in particular students with autism and ADHD and how that works in your MFL classroom. So as always, you can get in touch with me on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. I am at Kate Languages on all three, or you can email me through my website, katelanguages.co.uk. You can just go to the contact form on the homepage there and email me that way. One more thing I wanted to say actually is that we were a little bit pushed for time with the uh, with the interview and basically at the end we, I kind of have to, I had to sort of wrap it up pretty quickly and finish it quite quickly because my husband went to pick up my son from nursery and they got back and he needed to go into a meeting and I had to then look after the little one and I want, I I don't know, I, I was thinking like, oh, should I, should I try and edit that out and make it seem like that didn't happen, and I thought, no, do you know what, this is my life, this is what happens when you're a busy working parent, when you are two busy working parents, and you're trying to squeeze in, because Lizzie has children herself as well, and I just thought, no, this is real life, so I haven't edited that bit out, so the end of the interview might sound a little bit hurried and strange, and you might even hear a toddler in the background (laughs) I don't know how I don't know how well you can hear him in the background hopefully hopefully not too much so anyway yeah I just I just thought I'd give you a a heads up that the end of the interview might suddenly seem a little bit rushed so uh, there you go but anyway here we go this was my brilliant chat with Lizzie Swan hi Lizzie how are you I'm great Kate it's lovely to see you thanks for having me You too. Yeah, great to see you. Um, So basically, yeah, I just wanted to get started with a bit of a background about your teaching career and how you got to be an expert, as it were, on teaching children with ADHD, autism, you know, being able to talk about neurodiversity, which is what we're going to be talking about today.
1: So I've been teaching for, gosh, 20 years now. I'm a qualified teacher and I started my career training as a teacher of modern foreign languages um, in secondary schools and the
0: best ones do (laughs)
1: absolutely, absolutely the best ones and I started teaching in Hayes and Hounslow and straight away my absolute passion is for working with vulnerable learners in particular learners with special educational needs and I started off in my first year I became the gifted and talented coordinator and then because I wanted desperately to go and find a role working within the special needs department. And that was the first role that came up and, and it was the first role that came up. there's no such thing anymore. You don't have gifted and talented coordinators anymore. You know,
0: I was gifted and talented coordinator um, at yeah. my last school as well for a couple of years. And yeah, I really loved it, but I don't think it was considered to be within the SEN department. Like I, I basically just did it by myself. But it's quite interesting that that was incorporated with SEND. That's yeah, so it was. Yeah, uh,
1: makes sense. Uh, it's not recognized as a special need, but it was a big part of enriching our learners. And I was able to do some training there and I learned so much about just understanding how we can enrich all of our learners. Mm-hmm. And then I went down the pastoral route and became an assistant head. And as part of my assistant head training, I became a special educational needs coordinator and later went on to do my NAISENCO award. Mm-hmm. And I also at that stage became assistant head for teaching and learning for a period. But most of my tenure as an assistant head was supporting the pastoral care school and inclusion. I had the opportunity really early on to do some training with Paul Dix, who um, runs Pivotal. And so I'm a huge, huge supporter of restorative justice. And I did lots of training in Lewisham around restorative approaches, which has always formed kind of the bedrock of my approaches towards supporting pastoral care and inclusion of children. And when I became a deputy head teacher, I moved over to Suffolk and I was the deputy head teacher in charge of inclusion and pastoral care again. And I was sort of given the overview leadership. Um, I was head of school. Um, across two sites and then I had the opportunity to open the a school led by the local authority there and working with the multi-academy trust to open a school as a head teacher for children with highly complex social emotional and mental health needs wow. and so I worked there for as head teacher I learned a huge amount in a very short amount of time awesome. working with some children As I say, with highly complex needs, we had a high percentage of children who were looked after by the local authority. I learned a lot about ACEs, and so adverse um, childhood experiences. I just learned so much from the young people that I was privileged enough to look after. And then after my time um, as head teacher there, I went on and did my master's in psychology. And so I learned a huge amount about autism, ADHD, neurodiversity, but most importantly, how your brain affects your behavior. Mm. And during that time, I learned even more about myself and I identify as neurodiverse. And for a long time, I have been going through the assessment process for ADHD and autism myself. And also as a parent, I've been going through the process for my child of the assessment process for ADHD. And, you know, on every single front, fighting for children um, who I teach, supporting children who I teach, fighting for a diagnosis for myself and for my child. It is just endless exhausting. And I think the most common word that comes up for um, SEND, particularly around neurodiversity, is fighting, exhausting, but we just don't give up. And, you know, it's always looking for You know, innovative new ways to try and not change the child, never change the individual, Mm -hmm. but just to work around. And I think one of the things that we always say about autism in particular is once you've met one child with autism, you've met one child with autism. So when I say perhaps that I might be an expert in some aspects of autism, I'm probably an expert in me. I might be an expert in my daughter, but I'm definitely not an expert in anyone else. But I might be able to give people today a couple of top tips.
0: Yeah, that is such an interesting point, actually, and so true. And I think of the the children that I've come across, both in my personal life and as a teacher, particularly on the autism spectrum, that, yeah, n- no two children are the same. And the same with ADHD, I think, as well, isn't it? You're yeah. not, you know, you can't say, oh, this child, you know, has ADHD and therefore they act in this exact way. So yeah, so what we're going to be talking about is not a kind of one size fits all solution in any way whatsoever. But I absolutely love the way you say you don't change the child, we have to change our environment around it. I've seen a really interesting analogy when it about um, growing plants. And if a plant isn't growing very well, you don't change the plant you change the environment in which it's grown. so you change the soil or you water it differently or you move it to a different place and I just think that is so such an interesting analogy when it comes to nurturing young people as well I love it I just think it's brilliant, that's brilliant. So, I've never heard that I yeah, love it it's and I'm always, yeah it's good
1: isn't it and how I've missed that that's exactly correct yeah and I think this is where You know, I I mentioned, the you know, Pivotal and there's so many other um, behavior processes where when it comes to schools who have blanket uh, approaches to sanctions or blanket approaches to rewards. Even Mm -hmm. we do consider the child first and actually have that ability to be flexible around that and individualize as much as we can. There should never be a situation where a child doesn't have a consequence when their behavior doesn't meet expectations. There needs to be a conversation around that because that's not real life. Yeah. And if a child behaves in a way that doesn't meet expectations, there needs to be a a conversation and understanding. And the word consequences has negative connotations, obviously, because we want to be preparing every child for life as, if we can, if that's appropriate, as an independent adult. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we're hoping for for where appropriate for every child. And there not being a consequence just isn't isn't realistic for children who will be living independently. But you know, where possible, have that flex where you can around rewards and around behaviour but I think we'll move on to that when we talk about top tips
0: yeah absolutely so what are your top tips then for teaching so we I mean as a trained MFL teacher obviously we're thinking and the, the podcast is aimed at MFL teachers but this I guess can be across the board can't it and would you say from primary school right the way through I mean, I think absolutely from primary
1: school all the way through to secondary school, I think so much can be in place. A lot of the things that I talk about, actually I applied to myself as an adult learner. Mm-hmm. I, th- I was back at university last year. I'm hoping to go back to university this year if I can make it work. Mm-hmm. I'm a lifelong learner. I never stop learning from people around me. If there's a free course going, I'm on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of my ADHD is that I'm constantly curious. The strategies that you can put in place for a child with ADHD, I try with myself and they work. So hopefully things that you can put in place for an ADHD learner at school, in primary, can also work for an ADHD learner at secondary or in further education and higher education as well. So what's your first tip for teaching neurodiverse children? I think my first tip for teaching children who uh, are neurodiverse is don't automatically assume that they that neurodiverse children cannot participate fully in a modern foreign languages lesson. There is yeah. research that exists that shows that bilingual children with autism um, that this is a huge strength that actually it supports their speech, language and communication skills. Gosh. Mm. So there, you know, and I will send you the links to those research papers because it's very frustrating when people start a sentence with evidence says and they don't back it up with the research paper. So I'll send you that so you can put the link with the podcast. I will do. Thank you. Yeah. There's actually, you know, in terms of developing speech, language and communication for some autistic children, learning a second language can absolutely support mm. the, the social skills. Because in a let me take a French lesson, for example, if you are learning about how to interact in a cafe scene, mm-hmm. you're actually breaking that down into the nonverbal cues, you're breaking it down into how to structure those social interactions. And not only is that going to actually support an autistic child in that in a French situation, but you're teaching those social skills in, um, in any social context so it's actually supporting those social
0: skills yeah it's interesting you mentioned the cafe because in my last episode I was talking about sensitive topics in MFL and one of them is to do with food and cafes and things and actually I was talking about how to break it down and you need to put a lot of input in um and I had neurotypical children in mind but perhaps from backgrounds where that's not a normal thing that they've done. So it's really interesting that you that you mentioned that and breaking it down into the chunks and explaining it really clearly as being something that's really supportive for neurodiverse children as well. So that's brilliant. Yeah.
1: And um, if you're fortunate, and I mean, I know that this is many in many schools now, it's quite a luxury. Is if you're fortunate enough to have an additional adult in your classroom, please use pre-teaching. Um, so what that means is, please plan with your teaching assistant or your, your additional adult. Make sure, because I think modern languages often overlooks or doesn't ever get that additional adult in the room.
0: Very often, rarely, yeah.
1: But if you've got a French assistant, or if, you, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining this dream scenario where, where <laughs> MFL gets a TA. But yeah. if you have, use that, that additional adult and say, do you know what, we're going to use this, build it up. We're gonna use modern foreign languages to really reinforce speech language and communication with our autistic students. And we're going I, to- Sorry,
0: can I just interrupt you? yes yeah. are we, we are talking children on the autism spectrum who do have language though, if, you know, or are you also talking about non-verbal autistic children? Non-verbal autistic
1: children can, can participate just as fully. So you can participate by using comic strips, you okay. can participate by using gesture. You can participate because you can also add a sensory element by having, you can use food, you can use props, you can okay. use gesture. We can use, uh, I'm thinking off the top of my head, and I'm thinking of lang- uh, lessons that I've taught because I've taught French in special school environments as well. Okay. Because as a head teacher of um, a special school, we made sure that languages were also a part of our curriculum Oh, wonderful. But making sure that you've got video in there as well so that the, so an autistic child can watch the conversation take place and then can replicate part of it themselves.
0: Yeah, I love it. And
1: because this isn't just about taking part in a conversation, it's about learning about a different culture. Mm -hmm. It's about taking part in the food, French cafe. So it's about taking part in actually feeling what the croissant feels like, feeling bread. So if there are any sensory concerns about um, some of the foods or touching some of the the foods, because many autistic children may be very, very reluctant to touch or feel different foods. But actually, brioche is a food that many autistic children are really comfortable with because it's very soft.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So I mean, I'm being very sounds very middle class. (laughs) I'm actually cringing at the fact that I'm talking about brioche. But my child has got real sensory challenges around food. But brioche, if I haven't got brioche in, you can buy them from Aldi um, for 85p. We've always got bags of brioche in the freezer. And it's just, it's, it, but, and it's also things like cutting up an orange and having those smell sensations as mm. well. Back up. There are so many different ways that an autistic child can take part in a French cafe. Um, And before anybody sort of emails you and says, does does Lizzie know that French teaching is a bit more than just doing a French cafe role play? Of course. (laughs) I do know that, but that's just one element. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. In terms of German teaching, one of the areas of uh, strength that autistic pupils may have is the, how do I put this, the ability to learn so much of the German grammar by rote. Mm, Yes well and also learning I'm mean, being very general I'm generalizing here which I'm, I'm often loath to do but also learning vocabulary by rote but there's something so so comforting about learning um, grammar rules and particularly um, a language that's as formulaic as German mm. then I always find that German has been is successful with many of my neurodiverse students because there are so many rules yes and the rules apply with with such cleanliness is the way that I can put it that you know you have a modal verb and if you use a modal verb this is exactly what happens
0: yeah
1: and, and you know you've got like almost like you've got a right or wrong answer with German I always felt German was quite mathematical almost that's exactly how I would describe it and yeah. I think that that's you know I think there's an assumption there's too too often a false assumption that children with complex needs or, or, or autistic children just will find it just too difficult when actually it's they're starting from scratch with a language, with rules. But for many young people, actually it's the first time they're being taught grammar in, at a point in their life where they can actually learn the rules, apply the
0: rules. Yeah. And actually it's quite a pleasant release. Mm. And I know we're not going to talk about uh, children with dyslexia in this episode, but I have found that dyslexic children don't struggle with their spelling as much in the foreign languages as they do in English, uh, which is it's just a little aside. And yeah, but I think it is related to what we're talking about because it's starting afresh. and. That is another reason why I think they shouldn't be removed from MFL because most of them start in year seven in particular with a clean slate. Um, They might have done a little bit at primary school, but generally their knowledge is kind of mm, zero. (laughs) You know, if they're really lucky, they will have done some at primary school. And I think that puts them on a level footing with the rest of the class. And I think that's such an important thing to do. I mean, I think what you've hit on there is
1: so key is that so many well not all but many children come in at year 7 on a fairly level f- footing and actually children who felt that they've been falling behind and falling behind come in at a level footing and think actually right I can catch up now and that's why MFL gives children a chance to go right I can I can get here and also the fact that they can excel in speech you know they're, they're speaking means that and that's given yeah. footing I think also it does but going back to my top tips, I think one of the things that that languages teachers probably roll their eyes at when they see it on Twitter, if they go on, is the fact that we've been dual coding for years. And it always irritates me when I see teachers come on and, and sort of wax lyrical about dual coding. And I'm like, yeah, but we've been doing that for so long.
0: So can you uh, explain if people don't know what dual coding means? Can you yeah,
1: of course. It? an image to reinforce the meaning of a word. And... Um, Running it alongside, and as languages teachers, how long have we been doing that for? Yeah, I mean, Um, I can't imagine teaching
0: certain vocabulary without pictures. So yeah, (laughs)
1: exactly. And I think, and when I when dual coding first came up and everyone was talking about it, I I genuinely had to had to look up what it meant, and I was like, "Uh, I really wish that I'd got in first with talking about it because we've been doing it for ages, but don't stop doing it because it's so obviously the science backs up why our brain why our brain needs it and particularly for um adhd children autistic children it's so so important to have those two th- pieces of information together at the same time and of course for dyslexic learners as well they need those two bits of information because it reinforces so much and don't stop doing it in my adhd short what i was saying was when you're doing when you're giving out a task or group work or any kind of checklist it's really important for ADHD children that they have a set amount of time or timers for tasks because there's more and more awareness now for ADHD. Oh, I, I call them ADHDers, but ADHD um, learners of time blindness. And I suffered terribly with it, which is why you're gonna have to keep giving me n- nudges. And so I have to set timers on my phone. I have, I have little clocks everywhere. But if you set a task for uh, one of your ADHD learners and, you know, either write the clock face, draw the clock face on a mini whiteboard on their table or set them a timer or an egg timer next to them. Egg timers are brilliant. Those massive ones. I love them. But if you've got a clock face, an analog clock face in your classroom that you're relying on, I think there's some great statistics about how few children in our schools these days can actually read a clock face. Mm especially if you're teaching how to tell the time in your in your target language. So many of your class can't read the time. Yeah. So assume that either match up with the maths teacher in your school and make sure that they do a recap on telling the time using an analog clock. Assume that you're going to have to spend some of the time teaching the time in, in English, mm-hmm. but make sure that you just draw the clock time on their sheets and set timers because ADHDers do suffer from time blindness. There's either now or there's the infinite and That's give fascinating. Yeah. Just like toddlers. So for ADHDers, there's very little progression from the, the toddler stage with a concept of time. So just set those nudges and it's the same with homework. So and deadlines for coursework, right. so is, you know, there's real challenges around coursework deadlines um, or any kind of long piece of homework. Mm. So, if you are in a school whereby you have a virtual learning uh, VLE, I don't know why I called it, it's a posh name, a VLE, or you're allowed to give out your, a secure teacher email, they're really helpful for the autistic children or ADHD so that you can send out nudges or prompts, okay. but always copy in the parent or carer because then the parent or carer can back it up at home as well. And assume anything that you give out to an ADHD learner is going to be lost and that's not because there's any malice in it but because that's an executive functioning skill that they just don't have Mm -hmm. because organization time management forgetfulness they're all executive functioning skills that are just they're just chemically not there
0: and how would you support them to you know if it's really important things like vocabulary booklets or things like that (laughs) would you say that they need to just leave them in the classroom with you and that you will Keep track of them. Is it better to have them online? What would be your tip for that? Do you think?
1: I think you've just given two tips. I think
0: they're brilliant <laughs> yes. tips.
1: Okay. Um, one of the great things is that my son has got a tough bag. They are. I mean, I think you can probably get them. I I shan't name any suppliers. Um, but you, actually, I'm not going to get sponsored. Um, you can get them on. It's not the BBC. Don't worry. Yeah, you can get them. I bet you can get them for about a thousand pounds from Espo, or you can go on Amazon and get them for a few quid. They're you can get A4 plus size, and they're tough bags, and you zip them up at the top. Do not get those plastic ones that are poppers because uh, within a one day of being in an ADHD child's or my bag, they're just ripped. But these tough bags are made out of Teflon, I'm sure, and they put all their worksheets in them and they zip them closed. If you can laminate it. But don't go crazy because, as an MFL teacher, we guillotine laminate everything, and we're insane at preparing resources. Don't over prep yourself. But
0: just if you can email it, email it. Yes. And, and again, would you say copy in the parent or carer mm. so that they can then okay. support them? So I'm just thinking, you know, if you're setting vocab learning homework, and they're likely to lose their vocabulary book, yeah, you want them. So you want to keep that at school but they need to have it at home, then, yeah, to email, to make sure that the parent or carer has a copy, either a physical or email copy.
1: Yeah, and I think it's about getting the balance right between providing a structured environment in school for them to do home learning and it not seeming like a detention and also not, providing, not creating additional workload for you as a member of staff. So it's like saying, okay, once a week, I'm going to do an MFL clinic. It's going to be a time that's convenient to you. And if anyone wants to do catch-up clinic with me, it's going to be at this time and this time only. It's not a detention, it's not a punishment. Yeah. Anyone that needs to do catch-up with me, but just make sure you're not creating additional workload for you, because that's something I also feel very passionately about—is yeah, reducing
0: yeah, very much. So, yeah. And what about the actual classroom environment itself to support Ooh. neurodiverse children? Um. Okay.
1: Please, please, please. <laughs> There's a few things I feel about this. There's so much, I was reading some books about ADHD and autism that were written in, I think about 2007, 2008. Mm -hmm. And it said, make sure that the ADHD child is sat in an isolation booth at the front make sure that they cannot see any other children. I'm like, please, if there's one thing I could set fire to you now, it's isolation booths and ideally isolation rooms. I hate them all, absolutely loathe them. There should definitely be a provision for children to reduce exclusions, but please let it not be anything that starts with isolation, I hate it. But if there can be, you know, some kind of opportunity for an ADHD child to kind of minimize the distraction. So I like ear defenders. I like headphones that have white noise or there's a new thing called brown noise, which Google it, it's kind of, the the Calm app does brown noise. It's kind of a bit noisier than white noise, but go for it. It, I personally, I kind of like it, but for me, the reason why it's good is that for me, if I have to sit in a silent room, I will be on fire in around two minutes. So silence for me is the worst thing. I mean, you can imagine I just start vibrating and then I'm literally on fire. So creating in terms of the environment in the room, if you, there are many children who have to have silence to study. and, And it's about creating an environment so the ADHD child respects that and understands that but can also cope. So making sure that they have the capacity to have a, I call them rest or wriggle breaks.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: And having a safe capacity for that because what you don't want to do is say, okay, Johnny, Johnny's my fictional child. Johnny, you can go and stand out in the corridor because we know where Johnny's going to go. He's going to go straight to find Jimmy who's in the next door room. And we know what Johnny and Jimmy are up to. Um, You're never going to see him again. And of course, you as the teacher is going to get a rollicking and we don't want that. But it's, so there's always this kind of striking this balance. But in terms of the environment... I am not a fan of Hessian on the walls. I'm not sure where we got to with putting these Hessian sacks on the walls in classrooms, but I do think trying to keep the classroom in terms of the environment, in terms of wall displays, too much stimulus on the wall can be so overwhelming and it can create, I'm going to say this from a lived experience perspective, it can just be overstimulating and there's almost too much that the children can't focus on what's on the board.
0: I completely agree with this. I have to say, personally, I do like a nice, clean, clear working environment. And sometimes I see all these kind of Instagram classrooms and they look lovely on Instagram, but I do think if I was in that room, I would (sighs) feel overwhelmed. And I am, as far as I'm aware, neurotypical. So I can't imagine for a neurodiverse child Or teacher, you know, I I just think, yeah, it would be really overwhelming. And I I would just be constantly wanting to read everything on the wall and not really paying attention to the teacher.
1: So, first of all, you're not going to get an incremental pay rise because you've got the best display on Instagram. Secondly, the children they, you know, the children aren't going to learn more because you've spent 50 quid in home, you know, in home bargains on amazing display materials.
0: Yeah,
1: And you're going to burn out. So that's another podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, what they need is you, they need to see their work up there, celebrated, reflected, and they need to see what I'm looking for as a teacher. They need to see examples of brilliant pieces of work, so they know what you're looking for and they need to see their own work up there celebrated but around the board it needs to be clear it needs calm and we need to stop putting up all of these like red flag behavior like I'm going to be because they're going to be panicking about about getting things wrong so keep the board clear keep it calm I mean, I'm just saying that from, from the perspective of a neurodiverse learner, but also from someone who's spent 20 years in and out of classrooms, yeah. keeping the environment calm. What's really helpful as well, though, is to have the school's expectations. So if you've got like um, a school charter or you've got your 12, uh, let I hate the word rules, but 12 rules so that you can refer to them. If you've got things like that keep it simple but keep it present so that you can refer back to them and remind the children all of those things are really important but but make sure that they are present because
0: oh, yeah so the last thing i wanted to talk to you about as well is rewards and sanctions oh yeah uh, i think we've touched on it a bit and then yeah having the rules and referring to the rules but i know that you've talked a bit on your instagram about not punishing ADHD children for things like you've just been talking about that they're likely to lose worksheets or books or whatever so yeah could you expand on that a little bit as well so
1: I think it's being mindful as teachers you will know your children best and you will for if a child has a diagnosis of ADHD and or autism because quite often they can uh, some children can have both they will be on the send list, send register, whatever your school um, calls it. And they'll have an indivi- uh, individual education plan. They might also have an education, health and care plan. They, they, they There isn't an automatic assumption they'll have both. Okay. Um, hang on a minute. If they have any HCP, they'll have an individual education plan. So the most important thing is, is that you find out as much information as you can about that young person's individual needs if you don't have any information the person you go to is the senco mm-hmm. and find out as much information about that that child's needs because then you'll know whether or not that child is swinging the lead and actually just can't be bothered or actually they do have executive functioning need you know difficulties and they have actually genuinely really have specific difficulties with organization or they just can't be bothered, and they're generally or they're struggling so that's your starting point but ADHD in order to get that diagnosis they will have really specific difficulties around it so it's highly unlikely if they've got a diagnosis that they don't have that so you can tell my ADHD is coming out now because I'm waffling around the houses <laughs> um, so for me to punish a child with ADHD for their forgetfulness, I, I, I just couldn't, I think is, is an ethical challenge. Mm-hmm. What would be a more appropriate use of time would be to sit down with them, make a visual checklist, to set up timers, reminders, and nudges, um, and actually put in place that time. it take five minutes mm-hmm. um, um, to actually put in place nudges and say, right, this is where we're gonna put your book here's your tray in my classroom. At the end of the, the lesson, that is where your book goes. Yeah. That is going to develop your relationship with them. It's going to strengthen your relationship with the parent because trust me, as the parent of a child with complex needs, we're already knackered. Yeah. We want We desperately want to work with you as the school because more than anything in this world, we want our child to succeed and we desperately want our child to get on with their teachers. And we do yeah. not want any more with our own child because trust me it's hard at home you think it's hard at school it's very hard at home mm. and
0: um and so you're going to get that parent on side as well yes and as we you were saying before with anything that you do include the parents and, and, yes, exactly. and tell them exactly what your are what's going on you know and say like you're just saying you know this is where their book is going to be in the classroom so they're aware of that the child is aware of that and you have to be really consistent I think that's a key thing as well isn't it Consistency. absolutely
1: yeah and I think that was one of the things I've actually written down here to say but I've missed it and I think MFL teachers I know I'm biased but MFL teachers are so brilliant at this is having a set routine to a lesson yeah and knowing, and we because we have to perform so much in our lesson to to engage and to sell and to convey the language, mm-hmm. because you know I'm constantly acting with my hands, it's because so much I have to sort of emote what I'm saying in yeah. the target, but we often have a very, very strict routine to our lessons,
0: yeah, definitely.
1: That's why I think as MFL teachers, our lessons are a place, are a really safe place for autistic children and ADHD children. They come in, they know exactly what's happening at the start. You know, we say we have very clear hand signals for everything that happens. And we have very clear, tra- taught transitions between activities. And we teach the children what everything means. You know, we teach them what means we teach them what sit down means we teach them what open your book means and for an autistic child that is so powerful and such a deep relief so you know go mfl teachers
0: i love this because yeah with you talking about the dual coding and things like that it's stuff like you say that we've just embedded in our teaching for generations and actually it's great to know that a lot of what we do is already so supportive to neurodiverse children i mean it's almost a bit of relief because it's not like, oh God, I've got to add all these extra things on my list. It's quite good to think, oh yeah, we already do
1: this already. You do. And I think one of the other things, just whilst we're saying how great we are, is that, you know, and I remember getting this feedback when I was doing my PGCE, which was, which was oh my gosh, over 20 years ago, I did my PGCE, was stopped, you know, and for, for someone with ADHD. And at the time I didn't, I didn't know, was talk less, talk less. And I had to script my entire lessons.
0: Yes, I remember. Yeah, I remember. I
1: script my instructions and I had to script my lessons. And can you imagine a geography teacher having to script their instructions or a maths teacher? But because I was delivering my lessons predominantly in the target language, I just script everything. And so I think, you know, that's really powerful.
0: I would absolutely love to talk to you all day uh i'm afraid i can hear a little voice uh in the background so i'm gonna i'm gonna have to love you and leave you but before we go can you tell people where they can find you lizzie absolutely so uh, my website is
1: elizabethswan.co.uk and you'll find me on instagram if you just search elizabeth swan
0: perfect okay thank you so much like i say i could have talked to you all day i'm afraid we're out of time um and yeah thanks so much and i hope that people will have a have a look at your website and i'd love to know what people are already doing in the classroom and other tips that other people have as well for working with neurodiverse children so thanks ever so much for your time hey thanks. thanks yeah okay thanks, thanks. Bye. bye bye so yeah as i said at the beginning it was a slightly abrupt end to the conversation, but I think we got in all of the key points and some really, really fantastic tips and really practical things that you can do and also that you're probably already doing, which as I said, towards the end uh, of the conversation, there is probably quite a relief for a lot of people that a lot of what we automatically do as languages teachers is really great for children with autism and ADHD. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. As I said before, if you want to get in touch with me, I am at Kate Languages on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And my website is katelanguages.co.uk. And if you'd like to learn more about what Lizzie is up to, she is Elizabeth underscore Swan underscore UK on Instagram, and her website is elizabethswan.co.uk. So, have a fantastic week. I will be back again next week, hopefully with a fabulous conversation with somebody who was actually my head of department. Um, I don't even want to work out how many years ago, but very early on in my career, uh, she was my head of department. I can't wait to chat to her and catch up with her so like i say i'm hoping that that will be the episode next week if not it will be something else um but yeah so until then auf Wiedersehen adios au revoir bye